It's my great joy to welcome you today. My name is Josh Houston. I'm one of the pastors here. We're nearing the end of a two-month sermon series called Jesus the Storyteller. I've been sharing about the power of story, about Jesus' narrative approach to instructing and teaching his followers. Um, So what we've been doing is walking through some of his parables to see how they might speak to our lives and the way we approach our lives as well. Today, I want to preach a message entitled, To Judge or Not to Judge. To Judge or Not to Judge. And I want to talk about comparison. I want to talk about judging. And here's what I want to suggest this morning. It's kind of my thread. To choose your metrics for success wisely because they determine whether you will ruin or redeem life. Choose your metrics for success wisely because they determine whether you will ruin or redeem life. This morning, I want to walk you through another of Jesus' parables to help you take an honest look at how you define success and what influences your contentment. So if you brought your Bible or a Bible app, I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, we got Bibles in the back in the connection table. You can pull out your smartphone, get the version app going. I love holding a physical Bible. I love it when people bring Bibles and there's notes and highlights in it. It's good. This is Luke 18. I'm going to have the text up on the screen as well, starting in verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. If you're not aware, Jesus' parables carried this unique offensive appeal to them. They weren't, they were purposed not just to teach, not just to entertain, but to instigate a response from people. Kind of like he's saying, call me a fool or come and follow me, but choose a side. Either way, let your ears, let your imagination propel you to respond in some way. Now with this parable in particular, he aims it at those who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. So he's sharing this story with with individuals who have this inflated view of their own moral purity and and have this like self-diagnosed spiritual elitism. I, I, I like who I am. I'm proud of who I am. And I wonder if there's a connection suggested here between being confident of your own righteousness and looking down on others. Just, just an inherent suggestion there that the kind of person who shows up to their spiritual journey with arrogance will likely struggle with despising another spirit, another's spiritual journey. So Jesus says two men, they arrive at the temple for prayer. Two contrasting characters here, this Pharisee and this tax collector. Both of them pray. The difference is in how they approach God. So first, the Pharisee. Pharisees were the religious authority at the time. Largely respected, you could say they were viewed as being on God's side. They made up the moral, the the spiritual backbone of society. And Jesus says the Pharisee stood by himself to pray. And Pharisee literally means separate one. And this this Pharisee, he's, he's isolated himself. And he begins to talk to God. God, thank you. 
that I'm not like the others. I'm different. I'm different from these robbers and evildoers, these adulterers, or even this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I tithe on everything. Clearly, I go beyond the requirements of the religious law in comparison to these slackers surrounding me. Now, in an objective sense, there's nothing false here, really. You can see where he's coming from to some extent. I'm uniquely made. I've worked my entire life very diligently to attain this level of spiritual authority, a level of moral purity, and to be honest, I'm quite proud of myself for it. I'm not lazy. I'm not complacent. I take my spirituality seriously, especially in comparison to so many who don't. The Pharisee. And then Jesus highlights a tax collector. Again, a little context. In the New Testament world, Jews, they were under the authority of Rome, and Rome would tax them for everything. Roads, security, sales, crops, emergency, you name it. And the way Rome would get their money is they would hire men to run around towns and collect for them. Kind of like a front man for the mafia, if you will. Which means these tax collectors were hated because they were collecting money for the oppressors. So take it a step further, tax collectors made their living by overtaxing the Jews. They were overtly known to be extortionists of large sums of money. Whatever they could tax on top of the tax, they got to keep for themselves. So tax collecting was a very lucrative business for first century Jews. One of the more lucrative, but it came with this secondary title of greedy trader. So this is who we're working with. Jesus, classic parable set up for him. He's telling a story to religious elites about religious elites in comparison to Jewish traders. Of course this is going to go in their favor. Of course, so they think. Side note too here, I just, I love how frequently Jesus brings up and brings attention to the marginalized in society. The poor, the lepers, the Samaritans, the children, the women, the tax collectors. He repeatedly brings these ones up, these disregarded, these excluded groups, and he does it in order to call out the self-righteousness of the elites. And Jesus says, this tax collector, he stood at a distance in order to pray to God. He's using a little irony here. The one in this story who believed he was unworthy to draw near to God was the one who actually drew near. And he looked down while he prayed. It's just reflective of shame and guilt. And Jesus says he beat his breast. And the imagery here is that he's striking it over and over again in grief of his fallenness. Like he's saying, oh, this wicked heart. It's a sign of deep mourning and remorse. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it's literally translated here, the sinner. As in, if there ever was a sinner, it's me, God. I'm so sorry. Two differing approaches to prayer. Two differing approaches to God, to self, to other. The Pharisee's prayer was likely eloquent, flowing, very spiritual. In contrast, the tax collectors would have been bumpier and more rugged, but it was his prayer that pleased God. As if Jesus is saying, I suggest learning to pray with less words, but more meaningful ones. And then here comes the twist. The Pharisees don't see this coming. Who receives grace by the end of this? Who receives acceptance from God by the end of this story? Not the man perceived as righteous. No, the one who went home justified. The one who went home pure before God was the man notorious for his wickedness. This had to infuriate the crowd. In Jesus' opinion, the histories of these two men before they showed up to the temple to pray, they mattered very little. They were irrelevant. 
What they had done before they showed up to the temple, it didn't really matter. Jesus claims what God is interested in is the posture of your heart in the moment. That's what he's going after. And this seems to be a common theme that Jesus kind of ties into his teachings. It's the poor in spirit. It's the self-emptied. It's the broken. It's the humiliated. These are the ones who receive grace from God. Why? Because they've come to recognize how badly they need it. Gosh, this is so good, Jesus. And it's so offensive, Jesus. No wonder they murdered you. There's no wonder. Now, there's endless angles. There are endless angles we can take on this parable. And I was really praying through, like, how do we do, I mean, because there's so many different ways you can approach this. And the angle, I guess the thread that I want to pull on, the threads I want to pull on this morning, are on comparison and judgment. You know, I've been a pastor for 10 years now. I've served a lot of people, a lot of Pharisees, a lot of tax collectors, some men and women who, for the most part, have a, a pretty strong opinion of themselves, spiritual people familiar with church life, church culture. They give of themselves. They give of their finances. They fill in with religious people and religious circles, and then others with weaker opinions of themselves, visibly carrying shame or guilt from the past often troubled by secret sins or addictions. They have a difficult time feeling home and accepted when they're with religious, religious people or in religious circles. And when, when you have this much disparity, no doubt comparison is going to show up. They don't look like me. They don't talk like me. They don't work like me. They don't parent their children like me. They don't vote like me. And I think the temptation in reading this story is to quickly jump to a conclusion regarding comparison, that comparison is harmful. Comparison's harmful, don't do it. But I think it's a naive reading of the text. I think it's a thin approach. To think that Christians won't compare themselves to others, to think that human beings won't compare themselves or judge themselves up against others. Human beings appear to be wired for comparison. We're constantly gauging how we measure up to those around us. I mean, think about it. How long can you go today without comparing yourself to another? How long can you go without judging yourself or someone else off some standard of measurement? You get in your car after lunch today, and it's parked next to a car whose bumper is probably more expensive than your entire car. You tell me you're not going to notice that contrast? Or that the guy in front of you at the coffee shop wears shorts and a t-shirt to work while you dress in a suit and tie every day. Or that someone is taller than you or has a higher voice than you or has darker skin than you or prays to Allah instead of Jesus. Not noticing differences is ignorant. And I think ignorance is far more problematic than comparison. Because at a foundational level, comparison in and of itself is not destructive. To be in relationship is to be human. Humans are in relation to another. And if you're standing next to another, an other, you should detect otherness. You should see difference. Colorblindness is not the goal. Celebration of the other is the goal. You see, comparison is not our problem. Our problem is our metrics for comparison. How we measure success. How we measure happiness. How we measure meaning. Because when your metrics are faulty, that's when you end up damaging yourself and other people. Or to say it another way, while you may not be able to stop measuring yourself against something else, what you can change is the source of your measurements, the source of your comparison. You get to choose your yardstick. 
We need to realize that the metrics we use to define success, they have real consequences in our lives. And I think this is at least partially what Jesus was getting at in his story. Is that when you use a person as your metric for, for defining success, you always lose. Why? Because you either diminish your worth or you diminish the other person's. Either way, you destroy yourself on the way to your goal. And I'd argue that cultural norms don't help us much here either. If you look close, you notice that most of our, our social systems, they're, they're constructed with, with their own metrics of success built into them. Standards built into the systems. And then we're pressured to conform to those standards, those measurements. Get good grades. Make sure you get a robust salary package. Work for wrinkleless skin. Walk-in closets. Make sure you read the Bible in a year. More hearts and likes on social media. Now, some of society's metrics are helpful. Most aren't, though. Most of them are severely faulty standards. And when your standards are defective, where you find yourself is stressed out and hollow and restricted in your capacity to be content. It's so important that we get this. Our sense of contentment will be severely affected by how we choose to measure success, happiness, and meaning. Our sense of contentment will be severely affected by how we choose to measure success, happiness, and meaning. Some examples. Maybe your metric for finance is more is better. The more I make, the more successful and happy I'll be, the more meaningful my life will be. The truth is, though, money's nice. It's a helpful resource but it clearly falls short of true wealth. History has revealed this over and over again. Having more doesn't equate to being content. And having more says nothing about the way you're stewarding your finances either. Or regarding your investment of yourself into a church family, I can make arguments all day long about why it's beneficial for your life and beyond it, provided your measurement for success is based off of your alignment to Jesus, not in elevating yourself or, or diminishing yourself in comparison to another. Or maybe you define success in dating by how many people you have sex with in a given month, or how attractive those people are, or how many people you can date at the same time, for that matter. And once again, more doesn't necessarily equate to contentment in this category. And the pattern I've seen is that people using these metrics are the same ones who appear to be unsatisfied in all of their relationships. You see, human beings are driven by the pursuit of happiness, by the pursuit of meaning, but our default standards for measuring them are most often destructive in nature. You get to choose how you measure success. You get to choose your standards for happiness. In every area of your life, you get to divine, define value and worth and significance and meaning, and you have to realize that this decision will limit or elevate your ability to be content, your capacity to hold contentment. It will, it will limit it like a lid. The question we must ask ourselves is how will we measure our lives? What metrics for success will you allow to be your guiding standards? And it's not an easy question to answer. Some will measure success through money and notoriety. Others through attraction and popularity or family and relationships, or service and adding value to the lives of others, or more. And chances are you probably measure it all through a combination of all of this stuff, and more. But one in particularly probably matters most to you. 
One will likely stand out. One will likely determine your contentment more than others. So it's vital that we recognize that our metrics and our contentment are fixed together. Our metrics and our contentment walk hand in hand. But then let's take it one step further. The metrics you use for yourself are most likely determining how you measure others. You bring that into your relationships with others. The metrics you use for yourself will most likely determine how you measure others. Your filter for success and meaning almost never stay internalized. They end up being the filters through which we judge others. So if you measure your worth by your physical appearance, most likely you're going to measure others by the same standards. If you measure your life by adventure and fun, you will most likely measure others by how often they get out and party or how often they're stuck in their small apartment missing out on life. Or if you have a strong work ethic and you believe you've earned everything you have, your entire current reality, you will tend to believe everyone else has earned theirs as well. So if they don't have much, it's probably because they haven't earned very much. The yardstick we use for ourselves is most often the yardstick we use for others. And I think this is what Jesus is coming down on. Not comparison in general, but the metrics for comparison. This was the Pharisee's hang-up. His measurement for success was a person's commitment to living a holy life before God. The Pharisee's metric was, was righteousness. It was holiness, following rules, hitting all the religious marks. So he was proud of himself and disgusted by others. This is where he failed. Now, where I think the conversation eventually leads us is to asking a critical question. Is judging wrong? To judge or not to judge? What do you mean, judging wrong? Of course it's wrong. Jesus said it was wrong, right? Anybody go there? Well, he said, don't judge or you too will be judged. And I found this to be society's favorite verse, particularly because it appears to give permission to limitless tolerance. Do whatever you want. Don't judge me. But most often this verse is used out of context and it's used in a way Jesus never intended. If you keep reading, you see Jesus continues, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And he also said, stop judging by appearance and start judging correctly. And then Paul comes along later and says, is not the church called to judge? If you read through the entire New Testament, not just pulling one-liners out to back up the way you want to live your life, but if you actually read Scripture in context, it's evidence that judgment is not discouraged, it's instructed. You see, Jesus' problem was, what, was not with people who judge others, because judging is not inherently problematic. Jesus comes down on hypocritical judgment. Jesus comes down on condemning judgment. He took issue with how people judged. He was confronting their metrics. Because the metrics people use determine whether life is cultivated or it's suffocated around them. Damaging metrics damage people. Every one of us in some way has been damaged by someone else's damaging metrics. And what it leads us to is, is a fixation. It's developing a fixation in some area of our lives because that's a place we felt highly judged by someone else. Maybe it's your weight or your education or your ethnicity or your salary or your political party. And part of our development into healthy and whole persons, or put differently, part of our mature adulting 
is recognizing our fixations, rec- recognizing our paranoias, our obsessions, and then consciously cho- choosing new standards. Consciously choosing measurements and metrics that produce wholeness rather than harm. So what I want to challenge you today with is to judge, but to do it well. Because judgment's not the problem. Comparison is not the problem. The broken ways we approach judgment and comparison our dysfunctional metrics for success, that is where we go off the rails. And a simple way to assess your metrics, if they diminish your worth or if they diminish another's worth, they're probably causing harm. I want to come back to my thread. Choose your metrics for success wisely because they determine whether you will ruin or redeem life. Now, you might be asking, why judge? Why, Josh? Why, why, why judge? How is, how is judging beneficial for my life or somebody else's life? I mean, shouldn't we all just mind our own business? It's a great question, and I want to hit it two ways. First, through a personal lens, the, the kind of the internal approach. I won't know whether or not I'm progressing, whether or not I've grown in any area of my life unless it's held up to a standard. Whether in faith or work, or relationships, or health, or finance, it's impossible to know whether my soul has enlarged or withered unless I judge my efforts and my current reality up against a metric. Observing growth, or the lack of it, it requires judging. It requires comparing it up against something, holding two things next to each other. If, you're, if you embark on any kind of journey, a spiritual journey, a health journey, you're going to drive across the country. You're, you're trying to, to battle an addiction. You have to begin by holding up where you are next to where you want to be. You have to define current reality and then judge it up against whatever you define success as. And without judging yourself in that current state, you're clueless about whether or not you're moving in the right direction. So there has to be a personal approach to this. But then there's a communal lens. It's the external approach. You judging me is crucial for my growth. You judging me is crucial for my success and my journey, provided we're agreeing on what success means. I need you to call me out when I'm missing it, when I'm failing, because I have blind spots. And other times, I'm just consciously choosing self-destruction. We do that. We have blind blind spots, and other times, we just choose self-destructive behaviors and modes. We're called and we're created for community, so our growth and our development together, it's sharpened by our courage to call each other out, to judge each other with wholesome metrics. Now, where the church has historically gone wrong is judging without relationship. Standing on a a corner, holding signs, yelling at people through a bullhorn, it's not helpful. That almost never leads to redeeming in life. In fact, I've never heard somebody, they're like, my testimony's crazy. I went to a Dodger game, and this guy was like, you're going to hell. And I was like, I'm following Jesus now with my life. That's my story. I've never heard that story before. Judgment without relationship almost always comes across hypocritical and condemning. Jesus recommends to walk life with people. To journey with our family and our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers with the intent of elevating them. So judge. Please judge yourselves and others, but learn to do it well. Learn to frame your judgments and your comparisons inside healthy boundaries. 
Church, when Jesus shares this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, he's not saying just change how you pray. He's saying change your heart. Because you can figure out how to perform. You can figure out the right actions while you're rotting inside. So don't just revise your prayers. Revise what informs your prayers. He's, he's emphasizing a deeper property here. That if you follow him and that if you allow him to, his spirit will transform you at, at a root level. Not just superficial adjustments, but soul transformation. And what naturally follows is overflow. Transformation, transformed souls always manifest externally. Qualities like radical generosity, selfless service, inclusion of the outsiders, peacemaking, gut-wrenching compassion, childlike playfulness. See, the way of Jesus, it liberates us. It frees us from the world's games of promotion and authority. It paints new realities, realities that were either previously unknown or we thought was impossible. Jesus, he, he comes proclaiming that this kind of life is actually possible for his followers. If they will allow their ideas of success to be shattered all the way to the bottom and then renewed by the power of his spirit at work within us. That's what he's up to. I want to invite the worship team to come back up. We're going to go into a a time of response and worship through song and through prayer. And then we'll have two leaders up here as well, one over here and one over here for prayer. Um, I don't know what God's doing in your heart right now. It might might have nothing to do with what I'm preaching about. It might have everything to do with what I'm preaching about. And maybe you just need a song sung over you. Or maybe you need to stand with someone just ask them to pray over you. Maybe you need a moment to meditate and listen to God's voice. I want to come back to the story for a second. The Pharisee's metrics, like like how he defined success, here's what it did. It fostered arrogance in his heart, and then it excluded other people that were never out in the first place. His problem was not his lack of desire for holiness. His problem was his metric for holiness. So Jesus called it out. He pointed at it. And he called it out in order to announce a new way of being in the world. And this is the kind of life into which Jesus invites us. A mode of being in the world that compares and judges, but it does so without hypocrisy, without condemnation, without diminishing the worth of another person or yourself. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an approach to relationships and it's an approach to, to creativity and work and faith that infuses life, that offers lasting hope, that transforms pain into wounds. Wounds that heal. Wounds that offer healing for others. Can you imagine a city like L.A. subtly, progressively influenced by a cluster of sinners like us. A cluster of sinners who've learned how to compare, who learned how to judge with with metrics that offer wholeness rather than devastation. I believe it would profoundly transform our electric city. If you didn't know, 
This is what Jesus is up to in LA. If you don't know, now you know. He's restoring our city to life. He's renewing it. He's redeeming it one person at a time, one relationship at a time. And today he beckons, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I'm humble and I'm gentle, and I offer rest for your souls. Let me make you whole. So Jesus, we approach you today comforter, our provider, our source of life, our source of wholeness. We come to you with thankful hearts, with broken hearts, with the realization that we need you so much more than we think we need you. So we ask for your transformative power to descend on us right now. Transform our greedy hearts, transform our selfish hearts. Transform our narcissistic hearts, God, into hearts that join you in the renewal of our city. We give you freedom now in this room to do whatever it is that you want. In Jesus' name.